Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Howard Kuhnruther, who co-edited the new book, The Future of Risk Management, along with Robert Meyer and Erwan Michel Kerjam. Howard Kuhnruther is the James G. Dynan Professor Emeritus of Operations, Information, and Decisions at the Wharton School and co-director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. He has a long-standing interest in ways that society can better manage low-probability, high-consequence events related to technological and natural hazards. Professor Kuhnruther is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a distinguished fellow of the Society for Risk Analysis. Howard, welcome back. I'm glad to have you on the podcast for a second time. I'm happy to be here, Beth, and looking forward to our discussion. Before we dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit about the Risk Center at Wharton and what it does? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center was started now almost 40 years ago here at Penn. It's a research center, and our mission r- from the outset was how we are going to better understand how people make decisions with respect to low-probability, high-consequence events, and then to try to develop better programs and policies for dealing with them. And that mission has been pretty consistent over the years. The t- topics that we've actually focused on have changed. Uh, Just to give you an idea of that, we started the Risk Center by looking at why people did not wear seatbelts, which was certainly true about 40 years ago when uh, only about 10 or 12 percent of the the population or drivers or passengers wore them. Uh, Now, of course, most everyone does. Uh, But we've moved into areas that are of of real global interest now, national interest, um, terrorism, climate change, and natural disasters. And uh, when we started, uh, relatively few people were paying attention. I think now it's the top of the agenda of an awful lot of firms and individuals who are concerned with these events. And finally, our interest has been to really study how decisions are made and then to really say, recognizing how decisions are made, we have to try to develop policies that link up the science, the risk assessment with the risk perception, but that people will pay attention to. And so that's basically uh, where uh, the center has been going. And uh, we look forward to uh, hopefully interacting uh, with a number of your listeners and at the same time uh, with the decision makers who are going to have to figure out what programs and policies are appropriate. And how did your latest book, The Future of Risk Management, come together and what knowledge gap does it fill? Well, this is a book that actually was in a way trying to celebrate uh, the not only our activities at the Risk Center, but the leading people really in the country and the world uh, who were focusing on the challenges we face with risk management. And we brought a, a group of these people together for a conference and then had them each pres- uh, put together uh, papers based on their presentations. Uh, this is ke- co-edited with my co-director, uh, Robert Meyer, and formerly our um, executive director of the Risk Center, Erwan Michel Kerjan, who is now at 
McKinsey. And so the three of us have been working together and put into conference uh, uh, agenda. And uh, then we have uh, really tried in, in many ways to highlight for readers uh, where this field has been going, but primarily where it will be going in the future. And that's why we label it the future of risk management. I want to spend some time talking in depth about your essay, but first, I'd like to walk through the book at a high level. The first section talks about behavioral factors influencing decision making. What were some key themes that came out of these essays? Well, we have a, we, we actually have six different paper, uh, papers in this first part, uh, and they all focus to a large extent on the fact that when we make decisions with risk, uh, there are going to be factors outside of what we would say the likelihood of an event and its consequences, which is more deliberative thinking, but rather that there are going to be emotions that are going to play a role. Risk perception may be very different from the actual risk, uh, and to a lot and and that decisions then have to be made with respect to how we actually can deal with these risks, recognizing that this is going to be the way people tend to make these decisions. And you can't get around that. Um, there are going to be uh, biases and, uh, and decision rules that may not fit into what one would call rational thinking, but it's the way we all think, myself included, in making a lot of decisions. And we generally do a very good job of them, but when it comes to risk management for the kinds of, of uh, hazards that we talk about in this book, the low probability ones, we don't do a very good job. And so part one says, let's begin to understand what where behavior uh, plays, a, uh, what people are actually doing when they, when they make these decisions. Next, the book discusses improving risk assessment. What lessons came out of this examination of assessment of low probability events? Right. Well, I think the main the main theme of all the papers in risk assessment is that there is a science that we should understand. What do we know and don't know about these risks? And we have people who have been focusing on that, um, including uh, catastrophe modelers, uh, Robert Muir Wood, who uh, is the research director for risk management solutions. A catastrophe model showed how models played a role. Uh, but then there was really uh, a set of questions related to the near misses that occur um, and um, uh, and systemic industry risk that plays a role, and also economic resilience. How do we really deal with resilience in such a way that we understand the science? And we had four real experts who played a role with respect to that. And these first two areas tie together as you move into a discussion of risk communication strategies. How can we improve communication of risk information? Well, yeah, I think that it is important that we figure out how we present these risks in a way that is most transparent to the individuals, but also recognize what they're likely to pay attention to. And the three papers that highlight uh, really highlight essentially how you can not only understand the risk assessments, but how you can then try to communicate the risk in a way that people are going to be paying attention. And so that's a, and it is a, it really is a risk communication strategy, a risk communication is a risk management strategy. It's step number one. Let's get the let's get these issues on people's agenda so they're willing to pay attention to them. I want to transition to the section of the book focusing on the role of risk mitigation, risk sharing, and insurance. Why is insurance important to understand in the context of national security? Well, uh, I think insurance is one of those 
policy tools that people really, I think, have a, a, a different view of how it would, the role that it plays than it actually should be playing in, in terms, and it does play. And let me indicate what I mean by that. When people buy insurance, they often are going to be purchasing it really um, when they either are required, and they are required in many cases, like buying automobile insurance or homeowner's insurance, or only after they have a disaster. And then at that point, they say, gee, I wish I had an insurance policy, and then they buy it, not necessarily recognizing that it can play a really important role in before the disaster for them to think about how it would help them if they do have a disaster. But the general feeling is, well, it's not going to happen to me. I don't need to think about that. And so it's a real challenge to let people know that insurance is a protective mechanism, but it isn't an investment. And that's what people tend to focus on. They say, well, you know, that premium is going to be costly. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to need it. And then they buy it after a disaster, but a few um, years later, if they haven't had a loss, they actually cancel their policy if it's a voluntary policy because they feel, gee, I've wasted my premiums. And one of the hardest messages to get across to people is that you should celebrate not having a loss uh, because really you're in better shape than if you had one and continue to buy insurance in case you have one. And that's a real challenge that the best return on an insurance policy is no return. So that's insurance. Mitigation is actually law, investing in, in loss protection measures to reduce the chances of a loss. And it can be tied directly to insurance, uh, which is our, which is what we discuss in part four of the book, and also to the role of government risk regulations like a well-enforced building code will help you to mitigate. Uh, and so those last two sections of the book, of which uh, I think we may be talking about the chapter that uh, that I wrote in in the, in the section on insurance and mitigation, but those last two sections are really designed to think that there's a whole set of risk management strategies that you want to follow, policies, um, and they include insurance and risk management, but they also include regulations. So I think it's in that spirit that we, uh, that we deal with it. And the one point that I would make in terms of linking insurance and mitigation, if you have insurance premiums that are really reflecting the risk of a, of a disaster and its consequences, the likelihood and consequences, um, which is what an insurance premium should do, then if a person mitigates and makes their house safer, they're in really good shape from the vantage point of getting a lower insurance premium because the claims the company is going to have to pay out will be uh, reduced by virtue of the fact they protected themselves. And so you kind of would like to link these two together so people know what their risk is by having a risk-based premium and at the same time that you have a mitigation measure to reduce that risk. Your essay is called The Role of Insurance in Risk Management for National Security, Back to the Future. I want to take advantage of your expertise to explore this topic a little more. And in particular, you mentioned the National Flood Insurance Program. I'd like to read a brief passage from a recent Congressional Research Service report on this to provide some context to my question. Uh, the CRS report says, as of October 2019, the NFIP had more than 5 million flood insurance policies providing over $1.3 trillion in coverage. The program collects about $4 billion in annual premium revenue and fees 
nationally as of October 2019, over 22,000 communities in 56 states and jurisdictions participated in the NFIP. According to FEMA, the program saves the nation an estimated $1.87 billion annually in flood losses avoided because of the NFIP's building and floodplain management regulations. In short, this is a big program. What is your take on the NFIP, and how did this program come into being? Well, I, I appreciate uh, your, your question, uh, Beth, because the National Flood Insurance Program is not only a big program, it's actually an old program, uh, started in 1968, so we, we're talking here about over 50 years now, and um, it started because private insurers were not marketing flood insurance, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they actually uh, were providing it until 1927 for a number of years, uh, but they had a very big flood in the Mississippi and felt that they really couldn't insure flood anymore and they had very large losses, so they just continued it. And so this is a program that the federal government started. Uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, was the one that is now running the, um, the program. And the idea basically was for the government to provide flood insurance to all communities that were willing to join the program. That's why it's a community program, and you mentioned the 22,000 communities. And then once a community decided to impose land use, appropriate land use regulations and building codes, they could then join the program so people could buy coverage. And um, when the program started, there were a number of, of there, there was a highly subsidized uh, premiums uh, because there was a concern that property values would fall if that people had to have risk-based rates. But the program has been moving more and more to charging um, uh, homeowners uh, and renters uh, premiums that do reflect the risk in a direction we think is a very important one to go. And so let me let me stop there. I can answer some additional things, but I don't want to just focus entirely on the National Flood Insurance Program. We can talk about uh, private insurance playing a role here too, and they and private insurers are marketing policies now to complement the National Flood Insurance Program. Yes, and you mentioned earthquake insurance as another similar example. How is insurance for low probability events supposed to work for the average American? Well, I, I think the, the, the most important uh, thing to say about both earthquake insurance and flood insurance today is that it really is a partnership between the public and private sector uh, in the following sense. that we, Let's talk about flood insurance. The flood insurance uh, policies are, gen, are normally marketed by private insurance companies uh, in terms of uh, ones that you might buy your homeowner's policy with. And they will they will provide you with a uh, with coverage, uh, but the losses are going to be really uh, 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 held by the federal government, uh, and that's why it's called the National Flood Insurance Program. So they adjust the losses and play a role. In the case of California, the it's a state uh, authority that the California Earthquake Authority that markets policies in much the way that the National Flood Insurance Program does, except they market policies directly and they bear the losses. But in both cases, there are private companies that also can provide coverage uh, to homeowners 
uh, if they prefer to buy them from the private sector. So it is it is that kind of an arrangement in both cases, and and partly because uh, a similar incident happened with the. Uh, private insurers with respect to earthquake insurance. They were marketing it for many years, but then they had the uh, Northridge um, uh, er, um, uh, earthquake that occurred uh, a number of years ago now. And in that earthquake, actually, the private insurer says, we're not really interested in marketing this anymore because we had such large losses. And so this raises a, raised a challenge in California, then started the California Earthquake Authority. It sounds like we're talking about two different factors in the low probability insurance market, one being the losses experienced by the marketplace and the other being the cognitive biases you mentioned that drive the insurance purchasing decisions of individual homeowners. There's a tension there. Can you talk about the competing forces? There, there is a lot of tension, as you, as you accurately stated. Uh, people generally don't want this insurance unless they're forced to buy it. And in the case of um, flood insurance, uh, people who are living in um, a relatively high hazard area, and, that, what, and what we mean by that it, uh, today is an area that has greater than one in a hundred chance of a flood occurring next year, uh, that could damage people's property, and that's called the 100-year flood zone or special flood hazard area. They are required to buy that policy as a condition for a federally insured mortgage. And the reason they're required to buy it is that before, um, uh, uh, when the program started, there were very few people who voluntarily bought insurance between 1968 and 1973, even though they had a fairly severe risk uh, there were losses, and these people were not protected, and so the Flood Disaster Protection Act got passed in 1973, uh, saying just what I said, uh, you've got to buy it if you happen to be in the high hazard areas, and so that's where it's required. When you talk about lower hazard areas, like let's just talk about Houston, um, because they were hit by Hurricane Harvey, very few people were buying flood insurance there because they can voluntarily purchase it, and most people didn't think they were going to to have the disaster that Hurricane Harvey wreaked on everyone and so in that area. So those people uh, uh, have, have the freedom to buy or not buy insurance, and most did not. How are individuals and the marketplace responding to the changes we're seeing in the environment in terms of the increase in extreme weather events? Well, this is a great uh, question, uh, Beth, because in a sense, if we think about uh, climate change, which uh, I think people are now thinking about, and our Wharton Risk Center is clearly thinking about that, as most of the colleagues that I I have actually been working with, uh, we really are dealing with the fact that there is now a sea level rise, uh, so you're going to have a lot of areas that are likely to be uh, flooded where they might not have been flooded before, and you have more intense hurricanes, and so you'll have storm surge and other things that are going to uh, create problems. And in general, I think people are concerned about that, um, but 
uh, there doesn't be, there hasn't been a lot of action taken to date in terms of trying to deal with that problem. And so I think that in a way, what we're really talking about here is how are we going to not only reduce the likelihood that climate change is going to cause these problems, and that has to do with the way that, you know, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we're also talking about mitigation or adaptation, mitigation in the natural hazard sense, but making uh, uh, communities safer against this and how can insurance play a role in that and insurance can play a role by actually letting people know what the premium is not only today but what it would likely be uh, over the next 20 or 30 years just given what you mentioned the fact that things are getting uh, a, a bit worse when it comes to flood related hazards. And this is a good segue back to the subtitle of your chapter Back to the Future. When you were discussing the work of the Wharton Risk Center earlier, you mentioned seatbelts, and your chapter talks about another safety innovation, sprinkler systems. And you make the connection between the mandate for sprinkler systems and mitigation in terms of insurance coverage. Can you tell us some more about that? Well, I think that, no, the, the reason for the title, Back to the Future, was talking about what uh, insurance companies tended to be doing uh, uh, in the 19th century, particularly the factory mutual companies. They, these companies and FM Global, which is a, is a FM standing for factory mutual, exist today. In the 19th century, you had companies that did what FM Global is continuing to do, which is to actually uh, say to co- these firms, if you have major factories safer by making sure that you mentioned sprinklers, may having lanterns that are safe at that time, other things that they could be doing to reduce the chances of a fire, for example, we're going to provide you with insurance. But you got to show that you've done the right things. And in a way, what we're, what the, the what I, my paper is trying to argue for is that we want to have insurance pay attention to the, the uh, opportunities to reduce the risk, to mitigate it like the factory mutuals did in the 19th century, and at the same time give people benefits from that. It, it isn't so much that they can't just say to a homeowner, you can't have insurance, but rather to say, look, if you do the following things to make your house safer, we'll give you a significant uh, premium reduction. And that way I think you can really encourage people to do the right thing, and right thing meaning make their house safer. That's what I would call the right thing now if it was cost effective and that didn't cost them too much money. But at the same time, I give them a premium reduction. So I think that's why we say back to the future. Uh, so, uh, so in a, and in a sense, you do have a problem when you have these risk-based rates for dealing with low-income people uh, who are going to say, I can't afford this, and you have to figure out a way to help those people, and that's part of of what the chapter talks about, by actually saying maybe we can give them an insurance voucher or something like a a food stamp voucher uh, to to help them along, but they know what their risk-based premium is, but at the same time ask them to mitigate. To, to actually say they should take uh, steps to make their house safer, and in return we'll give them uh, a voucher, but that voucher is going to be much smaller because their insurance risk is going to be a lot smaller. And this is work that I've done with my colleague here at, uh, at uh, on our risk center, Carolyn Kuski, uh, in, in, in a paper that we wrote, and I talk a little bit about that in, in my paper. You mentioned vouchers for insurance. 
how do we also make sure mitigation activities are accessible for all communities? Right. No, that's an important point. And, and, and often everyone says, I don't really want to incur this mitigation. It's going to cost me so much if I make my house floodproofing or even much more costly if I elevate my house. It's going to cost me a lot. And what we're saying is, why not have a loan um, tied to the mortgage? And that loan can be paid back over time. And the cost of the loan uh, may be less than the insurance premium reduction if it's a cost-effective measure. And so trying to tie these two together may make it very, very attractive to people who say, I, I want to get something back next year. Um, if I get something back next year, I'll feel much happier. And, and, and in a sense, by um, making the, the tie-in between reducing the premium and giving them the loan, they are going to actually come out ahead in terms of having a lower cost. The National Flood Insurance Program is up for reauthorization on November 21st of this year. What does the legislative landscape look like for NFIP, and how may it impact your work? Well, I will say, Beth, that what has happened with Congress over the last, really, year and a half, uh, when the program was supposed to be renewed, is that they extended it for another three months, and that's kind of what they did here. It was supposed to be reauthorized in September, and now it's November. Um, and uh, and I think the real challenge is to try to address some of the issues that we're talking about, where there's been a lot of work done on how you move towards risk-based rates. Uh, FEMA itself is now trying to change the whole rating system so that people are more uh, aware of what their true risks are. Uh, and at the same time, we would argue, and I would argue here, that you want to have some kind of private in insurers involved more actively to provide coverage, and I think FEMA would like to see that, and hopefully Congress could support that. But at the same time, you're going to have to deal with the role that uh, the government is going to have to play or the NFIP will play on dealing with the issues of affordability, or some government agency will have to deal with that. And also, I think the catastrophic losses that the private insurers or reinsurers or the people who protect the insurers uh, will not be able to sort of cover. And there's another role that the uh, public sector or the government could play. So what we're hoping, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that'll happen, is uh, that you bring in some kind of public-private partnership along these lines recognize the fact that you have to be fair to people, forget about affordability, talk about fairness. It's fair if you raise the premiums a lot that you help people who can't then say, I, I am not able to pay them, but at the same time also protect um, the private insurers as well as the program, the National Fundage Program, with risk me mechanisms that will actually uh, help them if there's a catastrophic loss. And there are things like catastrophe bonds, uh, which the NFIP is now actually purchasing to help them along, and I think those are in the, all in the right direction. But in terms of your question on legislation, who knows when the, when the bill will be reauthorized. It may be re -ext uh, uh, extended again after November 21st to um, uh, next uh, three months later. So we'll hope for the best, but hopefully a good piece of legislation that maybe that I would hope would address a number of the um, uh, issues that are not only brought out in the paper that we, my paper, but in many of the other papers in this uh, book, uh, The Future of Risk Management. You've already touched on a good number of lessons learned for government, which ties into the last section of the book. Are there any other lessons learned that you would stress for policymakers? 
Absolutely. I would say the following, and these three papers that are in that last section uh, by really key individuals are all ones that are talking about the tremendous importance of public-private partnerships, and regulation is critical. Requiring insurance, as we do, in the in not only in high-risk areas, but maybe other areas as well, like we do for homeowners insurance from the banking side, a requirement. Building codes that are well-enforced. Um, and the well enforcement is a really important part of this because you can have a building code in place, but if you're not enforcing it, then uh, you have a problem. And I'll say one little thing about that. After Hurricane Andrew in 1992, way back now, but that was a major hurricane that hit Miami and Dade County, Miami, Florida, and uh, Dade County, um, it, uh, the, the damage was enormous. One third of that damage could have been reduced if the building codes in Florida had been enforced. But what's interesting about that, and that's the positive side, is the, the, the state really took that as a lesson, and they have now much better, not only stronger building codes, but more well-enforced ones, and they are the, probably the best building codes in the country today. But it took Hurricane Andrew, and it often takes a disaster, but in this case it took Hurricane Andrew to get them to deal with that. And the last point I would make to tie it back to flood insurance uh, and the National Flood Insurance Program uh, as I indicated at the beginning, it is a community program, and so the, uh, the communities uh, are an important component to that with regulations, and they have a community rating system that brings the community directly into a regulatory environment in the following sense, that the National Flood Insurance Program will reduce your premiums for the entire community if the community takes certain steps to make their community safer against floods, including having buyouts and moving people uh, homes out of a particular area. Uh, that helps enormously, and you can get a premium reduction up to 40% if the community does all the things that would make it a much safer community. Well, Howard, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, would you like to tell us what you're working on now? We, we are really working at our risk center in terms of developing policies that actually will be implemented. We have proposed policies over the years. My colleague, who I mentioned, Carolyn Kuski, uh, has been uh, a leading person in thinking about a policy incubator, and we've been working with um, a number of different companies on the, on the idea of getting these policies implemented. But most important, we're now trying to do in this regard – to do field experiments uh, on how we can get people to buy insurance uh, and working with one of the leading companies uh, that is dealing with this, Amwins and the, uh, the flood insurance agency that has been marketing private flood insurance to actually um, put together strategies for dealing, getting people to pay attention. And um, I'll, I'll give you uh, just two very simple examples and that'll give you an idea of your readers an idea of what we mean. If you tell people that there's a one in a hundred chance of a flood occurring next year, uh, there's a tendency not to pay attention. But if you at the same time, um, or not, not at the same time, but rather tell them there's a greater than one in five chance of at least one flood occurring or flood-related damage occurring over the next 25 years, um, they then pay attention 
And those two probabilities are the same, but one in five sounds low enough for people to pay attention. So that's kind of one element of trying to deal with that, to change the time horizon on actually providing information. And the second point, the second uh, general point I would make, but a more specific one with respect to insurance, is that we're now trying to develop programs where um, you give people, you put flood insurance on a policy, you actually say to a homeowner, your homeowner's policy or a private company would say that or the NFIP could say that your private uh, homeowner's policy will include flood insurance if you don't like it when they have a a voluntary option of buying flood or not. If you don't like it, you can opt out of that coverage. And that has actually made, uh, in experiments we're doing, it has a major impact in people not opting out, saying, I want to keep it, partly because they may think their homeowners covers flood insurance, but it may not. It doesn't, and they may now know, realize it doesn't, but also because the people say, gee, I might regret actually uh, uh, opting out. But if you tell them that they can buy it as a separate policy, uh, there's a tendency for them not to buy it. So those are the kinds of things we're working on, and we're hoping that these policies that relate really to research that um, I've done with my co-director, Bob Meyer, uh, under the, this book that I know we talked about earlier, The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters. We're trying to tie in those biases, realizing you have them, you're not going to change people's uh, view of them, and if they are overly optimistic, one in a hundred is sounds so low they won't do anything one in five sounds high enough they may thanks for coming on the show again it was great to talk to you great to talk with you beth look forward to uh interacting with uh, some of the people who will uh, who uh, would like to follow up on these issues the future of risk management edited by howard kunruther robert meyer and erwan michelle kerjan is available now from the university of pennsylvania press Get half off your copy by using the promo code RISK50. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.